Aloha. Hey, this is Travis. Just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Here at Shorebrook, we're coming up to four years of ministry this July. Four years ago, a few families came out to Hawaii to plant this church, and by God's grace, we've seen transformation, church growth, people being baptized, and that's because of the partnership of the local church and those of you who have financially partnered with us. If you would feel led to support financially the work of the gospel of God being spread here in Kona and beyond, in addition to your tithes to your local church, you can go and give online at shorebreakchurch.com. But we just want you to continue to pray for us, continue to pray that the gospel would be spread and that people would come to know Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Continue to share it with other people. Grace and peace be with you. I'm humbled to be with you today. I'm humbled to have you joining us uh, on this Lord's Day on Sunday. Um, my name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you to Shorebreak. If you don't have a Bible, make sure at the end of this worship gathering that you go ahead to the Connect table. There at the Connect table, we'd be happy to uh, outfit you with a Bible. And the reason why we want to give you a Bible is because uh, we believe that um, as we gather together as God's people, that what's most beneficial for our soul is not hearing the opinions of man, not hearing my opinion, or even here hearing your opinion, or here to stir one another's emotions, but for us to place ourselves under the authority of God's spoken word. God does speak to us. God is speaking to us in the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to you and to me is through the scriptures. And so that's why we have you turn to uh, the Bible. And so we're that's what we do. And one thing we want to make clear is what we're not trying to accomplish is have a religious gathering of immoral people. We are a people, all of us, who are desperately in need of God's grace. Apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. Apart from Him, we are left hopeless on our own. And so one of the things that we try to weave within our DNA as a church that we want to say to one another or build within the language of our churches, listen, it's okay to not be okay. You're not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. And until we are glorified by Jesus, we live in this angst called sanctification when we are becoming more like Jesus, but we're not there yet. And so I'm glad to have you with us again. Um, we, we pray that this time would be a blessing, that, that by Jesus, the scriptures, and help from the Holy Spirit, we would navigate through this journey called life, and we would see what God has revealed to us. And with that said, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him 
and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Father God, thank you for you giving us the scriptures. Thank you for this story and these parables that Jesus has given to us. We ask that the light of the gospel would shine upon our dark hearts as we make our way through these verses, that you would replace the heart of stone and that you would, in turn, give us a heart of flesh. Heart that is positioned to glorify you, to worship you, a heart that, that no longer desires this world, but that, a, that you would give us a heart that desires you and your name. So, Father God, you bless the reading of your word. We need, desperately need your help to understand the scriptures. You were so gracious. You were so amazing. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Just when you think the feud between Jesus and his disciples and the religious people could not get any more awkward. It does. At the end of chapter 3 here, the, the awkwardness, the tension that exists between Jesus and these religious people reaches next level and partly because Jesus' family decides to get entangled in the mess. And you and I know full well, whenever family decides to jump into the midst of your controversies, it gets more awkward. Amen? amen. There's three people who agree with me. The rest of you are like, well, I don't know. Can I say amen? Yes, you can. It gets, it gets awkward when family, when family enters spaces that we're not used to them entering into. It, things just get weird. They do like, so my mom. She, love my mom, recently got a smartphone, right? And so she got herself an iPhone, and so she's texting now. And it's like, whoa, this is weird. Like, my mom is texting me, and she's entered into the space of my life, which I'm not used to. And so she doesn't think of the time difference because she lives on the mainland. Like, I'll get texts at 4 in the morning. Why are you answering, Travis? Because it's 4 in the morning. Like, just, you know, let, let me be. Let me live my life. Let me sleep. Let me enjoy my life the way that it is, and, and so she's texting. It's funny, because she's like, whenever she's done texting, she says, bye. I'm like, uh, 
bye, mom. Like, okay. And, or it's, maybe you can relate to that family member who, who finally got a Facebook account and you're like, oh no, they got a Facebook account. Now I can no longer live my life on social media um, the way that I had originally intended because they're on Facebook now, right? And, and so whenever family enters unfamiliar territory or steps into spaces that we're not comfortable with, it can be awkward. It can be strange. And that is exactly what's happening here uh, in this story. Uh, Jesus' family members are meddling in Jesus' business. Jesus' family is getting involved with his controversies And like most family, they think it would be best if they intervened. They really need me, so I should intervene. It's like, no, you shouldn't. But they do anyways, and that's what's unfolding here. Because Jesus' family, well, they want to extinguish the flames of controversy that seem to be engulfing Jesus. And in verse 20, then he went home, and a crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. So it's the intensity of... Of what's happening here. And when his family heard it, there you go, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Leave it to your family to insult you like no one else, right? Friends can insult you and your family will say, that's not very nice of them. But when family insults you, it's out of love. And so what out of love is Jesus' family saying about Jesus? He is out of his mind. Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? What are you thinking? Jesus, what are you thinking when you're saying crazy, controversial things like, yeah, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Like, Jesus, do you understand the weight of when you say you're Lord of the Sabbath, like what that entails? Do you understand how, how like crazy, are you out of your mind? Jesus, this healing thing is stirring up madness. In fact, people are beginning to call you king of the Jews. Something's got to change here, Jesus. In fact, we, we heard that you healed a paralytic man but not only did you heal that paralytic man we actually heard that you forgave him of his sins you were out of your mind jesus this has to stop and i wonder if mary's like you know because we were told here he hasn't eaten jesus you're getting too skinny you got to put some bones on those meat right some meat on those bones i had that backwards <laughs> You gotta bulk up. You need to eat. You need to take care of yourself. We need to protect you. We need to get you out of this spotlight because people want you dead and this controversy is not going how we plan for your life and so we're going to step in and intervene. One thing is for sure. Whether you're Jesus' family or not, there is nothing ordinary about Jesus. And his family is acknowledging that. He's so extraordinary, they're like, he's out of his mind. (laughs) Which is why the scribes are going to agree that there is something supernatural, there is an authority, the crazy things are going down with Jesus, no doubt. But they don't think it's from God. 
See, they cannot deny the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. And because they can't deny it, because everyone sees it, including the religious scribes, they're left to only do one thing. Slander the character of Jesus. You can't deny his power, then you might as well slander this God-man, this Jesus. They want to give him a false label to curb his popularity. In fact, verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Verse 23, he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? What is their identity of labeling Jesus? How are they going to slander Jesus? They can't deny that he has a power and authority like nothing they've seen before. So what are they going to do? Who do they think Jesus is? A demon. They think he's a demon. Beelzebul, the prince of all demons, that who is at work in Jesus' life. That's where his power come from, comes from. And these three fast-paced, intense chapters of Mark, we see Jesus' family having to deal with Jesus. Je- Jesus' disciples will have to deal with Jesus. They have and will continue to do so throughout this gospel narrative. The scribes and the Pharisees, they will have to deal and do something with Jesus. The Roman government, the Roman Empire is going to have to do something with Jesus. And because we're confronted with this text here and this story given to us by John Mark, you and I will have to do something with Jesus. We are confronted with Jesus, and we have to do something with Jesus. Now, some downplay Jesus. That's what we do when it comes to Jesus. Oh, I'm cool with Jesus. We're cool. I mean, I got my life over here, and, and, and as long as Jesus doesn't intrude in my life over here, as long as I can keep Jesus over here, and he doesn't demand anything of me, doesn't demand change of me, Jesus doesn't get in my business and tell me what to do with my life, I'm cool. In fact, I'll add Jesus to my already somewhat put-together, moralistic, semi-perfect life. I'm cool with that. Don't confront my idols, Jesus. Just don't tell me who to worship, Jesus. Don't tell me how to live because I don't want to be controlled. I don't want someone to tell me what to do. But I'm cool with him. Whatever, as long as he keeps his space. Some say, some will smear Jesus. Oh yeah, Jesus, yeah. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. Not only is a liar and is he a manipulator, he's a con artist. Like, virgin birth, for real? Like, he was crucified, apparently he was dead, and then rose again from the dead. He is the greatest con artist. He is a liar. He is the the most manipulative person to ever walk this earth. Or some just think, Jesus, he's he's a lunatic. Like his family. (laughs) Leave it to his family to say, he's a lunatic, he has lost his mind. You're in Mark. 
Jesus is forcing everyone to reconcile who we believe him to be. We are being forced to be confronted with the nature and the character of Jesus. And there is no neutral when it comes to Jesus. You cannot be indifferent with Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, which if you have not read Mere Christianity, I highly suggest that you, that you read that book. It is an amazing read. Finish it out. It, it, I mean, it's, it's an easy read. It's a really, really good read. Um, I would encourage, if you haven't read it, um, you've probably even heard about it if you've been a Christian for a while. Um, really encourage you guys to read it. But in his book, C.S. Lewis talks about this confrontation. And he says in his book, and I quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the real foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. What if C.S. Lewis is directly referring to this here in Mark? Jesus, he has lost his mind, or like the scribes labeled him, he's a demon, the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about, his be, about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We're not left with the option of saying Jesus is a moral dude, teacher, a good guy. And I love that Lewis paints for us these three options when it comes to dealing with Jesus. He is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he, he is Lord. And the scribes, how have they painted Jesus? He's a madman. He's, he's, he's a madman. He's a lunatic. I mean, his family kind of did too, right? I mean, they said he's lost his mind. Jesus, we know who you are and your power. You're a demon. So Jesus responds. Now, just so you know, if I was Jesus, if I was God, which I'm not, but if I was, I wouldn't respond at all. You tracking with me? Like, so, all right, God the Father, I'm going to pray to you. Just call fire down from heaven. Send them all right now. Teach everyone else around you a lesson. Maybe just throw a couple lightning bolts, a death by a thousand bee stings. How about that? Let's do that. Seriously. I, I would just 
But Jesus, the fact that he responds to this accusation is an act of his grace alone. He doesn't have to. He doesn't owe them an explanation, but he will. And how does he respond? With parables, with, with stories, verse 24, end of verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? Pretty good question. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his home. Jesus unravels the illogical argument of the scribes. By the way, a conversation the scribes are not talking to Jesus directly about. They show up where Jesus is, and as they show up where Jesus is, they're probably in Capernaum, we would assume. They're going around telling Jesus' followers, Jesus' disciples, hey, did you know that Jesus is possessed by a demon? Hey, you know Jesus' power? His authority to do all this is just because he's, it's because he's, he's a demon. They didn't actually approach Jesus directly on it. That's why Jesus calls them to himself. And he calls them out because they're not making any sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom of darkness wages war against the kingdom of darkness and wins, there is no kingdom of darkness. Like, it's like a logical smackdown. Jesus just brought them, leveled them right away, but then he doesn't stop there. He says, oh, if a house is divided against itself, which is a house we know is just a, another language for family. If a family is divided against itself, fights itself, and then that family wins in that fight, there's no more family. The house no longer stands. Jesus annihilates their accusations. He clearly made his point. He reveals their contradiction, but Jesus isn't finished with them yet. Verse 28. Truly. I'm telling you the truth. I've told you abstract stories. Now I'm making this clear to you. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And here is the unforgivable sin, a verse that has haunted many. In fact, this verse was something that, was, that tormented me when I was a young believer. It's very popular, but also very misunderstood. What is this unforgivable sin? What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is this sin that will not be forgiven? It's, it's, and it's an eternal sin. Listen, it's not a slip in the moment, but defiant rebellion. Even while being exposed 
to the truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not just unbelief, but determined denial of what truth has been revealed to us. Isn't that interesting that Jesus, look at this phraseology that he uses here. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. This is a unique sin. Yes, when we sin, we sin against God. We sin, we sin against Jesus. But there is a difference between sinning against the Father and sinning against the Son because a blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin. And this unforgivable sin is rejection of Christ when the Holy Spirit reveals to us the beauty of the gospel. It's enough of the beauty of the gospel has been revealed to us yet. We reject it. See, the scribes here, they're... They've made it their mission and their life to defame and to destroy Jesus. In fact, in context, it's important to interpret this verse in its context. To have an encounter with the true Jesus and to rebel against him anyways in light of what you know is unforgivable. So you don't accidentally slip into this as a believer. You don't accidentally kind of stumble into, oh, I, I didn't even realize I, I, I committed the eternal sin, a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is a calculated assault to slander the glory of Jesus, which is exactly what the scribes are doing. So maybe you are like me, and you, maybe you've worried about committing this sin. If you're worried about committing this sin, you're worrying about the wrong thing. Don't be consumed with this idea that maybe you have or you haven't done this. Be consumed with the beauty and the glory of Jesus. After all, this radical statement from Jesus comes out of a false accusation of who people believe Jesus to be. We've said it before as a church, and we'll say it again. The most important thing about you is what do you do with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Why then is receiving and then rejecting the Holy Spirit the crux of the unforgivable sin? Why is the rejection of the Holy Spirit unforgivable the Holy Spirit is essential for Christian living see my kids they, they, they wake up earlier than I'd prefer them to wake up they just they wake up and, and it usually requires that I become human which means I need to get a cup of coffee right and, you know, obviously water is the, the source, the, the, the foundation, the, the main element of life that keeps us alive. And next to water is coffee. And any good coffee snob knows is you do not have a good cup of coffee without good water. You have to have good water. And so um, the, the three elements, in case you don't know this, the three elements that make the perfect great cup of coffee is proportion, 
grind and water. So if you, you, you have a good bean and you grind it and the consistency is right and then you have the right proportion of that amount of grind with water, uh, that means you're going to have a good cup of coffee, but you can have the right grind, you can have the right proportion, but if you're putting tap water in it, then you're just defiling an otherwise perfectly good cup of coffee. Because water is essential for a good cup of coffee. And some of you are like, what is he talking about? I wake up every morning, I bolster my Folgers, I put tap water in there. No, repent, all right? Unacceptable. That's why you have to poison it with cream and sugar. It tastes terrible anyways. If you had good beans and a good grind and good water, everything would make sense. It would be good. Because water, good filtered water, is so I wake up one morning and, and we have no water. And so it's like, so I, well, we have water. It's tap water, but I can't use tap water in the espresso machine that I have because of calcification and it's impure and it's gonna taste bad. And so I could not have the cup of coffee that morning and, and it, was, it was a rough morning, I'll tell you that much. It wasn't, didn't wanna be in, in my house that day, but it's because water is essential for a good cup of coffee. And just as water is essential for a good cup of coffee, so the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for living the Christian life. There is no salvation apart from God the Holy Spirit, and there is no sanctification apart from God the Holy Spirit. And it's helpful for us to understand how our salvation works in light of who God is. Since this text is about slandering the nature and the character of God, it, it, it'd, be, it'd do us well and it would bless us to get God right. Did you know that our salvation is Trinitarian? Our salvation is made possible by each member of the Trinity. Now, we know we worship as Christians. We believe this is an absolute essential for orthodox, biblical Christianity. We worship one God who eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And each of them uh, makes salvation possible. In fact, our Trinitarian salvation is made clear in the most famous chapter in all the Bible. John 3. In John 3.16, we discover that God is a father. And this God has an exceedingly great love for a undeserved, unlovable people. We do not deserve love. We do not deserve grace. We do not deserve the love of God. But God so loved the world. Salvation begins with God. Does it begin with you and me? Does it begin with our sin? Salvation begins with God. For God so loved the world. And how do we know? How do you know that God loves this world? How do you know that? Because he what? Gave. 
God gave. God's love is manifested. God's love is demonstrated for us. God gave us. And what did God give us? Give us a son. God gave us Jesus. So salvation begins with God. Salvation is made possible by Jesus, by God giving up his own son to then live a perfect life, die a death that we deserve, was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. That's what God has given to us by him giving Jesus. That For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. What? An incredible promise. Amazing But how does that everlasting life happen? Same chapter, John chapter 3, verse 8. This is Jesus. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born again. The result of our salvation because of God the Spirit. Belief, hear me, belief is a result of the Holy Spirit. Salvation's origin is in God the Father, made possible by God the Son, communicated by God the Spirit. I can't make a claim like that without using some other verses to support it. I, I, I just encourage you later today, look at Ephesians chapter one. You, you will see this, the, the triune God at work in our salvation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But Ephesians 2, 8, just to reinforce this truth says, for through him, for through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to If there is no Trinity, there is no salvation. This is why we need to get God right. This is why we need to rightly understand Jesus. And this is why misunderstanding Jesus, getting Jesus wrong, is unforgivable. If the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for life with God, then to reject the one who communicates salvation is to reject God himself. And that sin is unforgivable. It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. True salvation only comes through God. And then to know about this and to reject him anyways. It's blasphemy. And this is true for the scribes. After, even with this being said, verse 30 says, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. 
Who's Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he liar? Lunatic. Believe on his name. Do not slander him. Do not reject him, but receive who he declares himself to be. We all have to do something with Jesus. Do not defame the name of Jesus, but believe in his name and all your sins will be forgiven. Do you see that wedge? Wedged within the most sober, one of the most sober verses in all the Bible is the gospel. It's good news. Look at verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. Father God, in you and you alone do we have hope and salvation. Cause us to be born again by your spirit doing that work in our dead bones. Breathe life into our lungs for we acknowledge that apart from your spirit, Father God, we can do nothing And that, God, you so have a great love for this world that you were willing to give your only son. And that that is communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. And so may we receive what the Holy Spirit has illuminated to our, our hearts and our souls, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your love. Father God, we desperately need you and so we trust in you that it is in your name and your name alone can we be saved may you be lord of all in jesus name we pray amen